The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Marty and Glenna Durham lived in Ensley Township, Michigan, just a short drive north of Grand Rapids. It is a rural area set amongst nature preserves and golf courses, right on the edge of the Manistee National Forest. It's a real paradise for outdoorsy types. I don't want you to get the wrong idea, though. The Durham home wasn't a well-landscaped country club property. The Durhams were working-class people, and the home where they lived for more than a decade reflected that. Marty was a former long hair and proud of it. There are lots of pictures of Marty from back in the day with hair down to his shoulders, and he wore it well, but like with so many young men, grown-up responsibilities eventually came knocking. On May 13, 2015, a neighbor was knocking. On the door at the Durham home, Connie Ream, a neighbor who talked or texted daily with the Durhams, hadn't seen them in two days. Her husband, Keith, jokingly sent a text to Glenna that read, What have you done with Marty? but there was no response. So Connie went to the Durham house across the street, and she knocked. When she got no answer, she tried the door, and it was unlocked. She entered the home to a terrible scene. Angie Jackson from M Live would later report, The neighbor had seen the couple on the floor with blood on them, and she found firefighters working on a fire down the road. The neighbor feared there had been a suicide and alerted the firefighters who were on the scene of a fire nearby and several firefighters entered the Durham home. Later accounts would describe the place as being in extreme disarray. The home was not only a mess, but it looked like there'd been a struggle. There was a broken lamp and other items knocked out of place. In the bedroom, there were bullets on the bed, and both Marty and Glenna were shot and not moving. It didn't take long before responding firefighters decided to back out of the Durham home in the interest of preserving what increasingly looked like a crime scene. Investigating officers responding to a possible suicide arrived at the scene of a potential double murder. Marty had been shot five times. Glenna lay on the floor nearby, partially covered in a blanket, and appeared to have been shot in the head. Under a living room chair, they found a Ruger pistol the possible murder weapon. Investigators started to analyze the crime scene and tried to make sense of the chaotic home, but it was a lot to process. The search had been going on for about an hour when Michigan State Police Sergeant Gary Wilson thought something was off. He was trying to get the Durham's growling pooch to come along nicely when he looked at Glenna's body on the floor. He watched her carefully for a moment. According to a report he filed later, he would say, I didn't think she looked deceased, and I believed I could see her breathing. 
Sergeant Wilson leaned forward and reached out to check Glenna Durham's pulse. When he touched her, her eyes popped open. She was reportedly combative, confused about what was happening, and paramedics rushed her to the hospital. Later, the revelation hit the press. Police reports indicate authorities were on the scene of a Nuevo County homicide in May for more than an hour before they discovered one of the victims was still alive. This was not a willing admission on the part of investigators. The media uncovered it with a Freedom of Information Act request, and only months after the fact. It was an embarrassing oversight, and although the circumstances have never been fully clear, it seems the ball was dropped somewhere in the handoff between the medical first responders and law enforcement. The fire chief told the 911 dispatcher that the Durhams were confirmed dead. We don't know if a paramedic told him that, if he just assumed it, or exactly what happened. You also have to wonder if the unusual nature of the event, getting flagged down by a neighbor about an unrelated event, was unusual enough that it distracted the first responders from tasks that would normally come automatically, like, for example, taking someone's pulse. Regardless of how it happened, it happened, and it was not a good look for the team. On May 14th, the day after the murder of Marty Durham, Marty's kids, two sons and a daughter, used a credit card to slip the lock and sneak into Marty's locked home. At the time, still an active crime scene. It became quickly apparent that the police had missed something else in their search of the Durham home. On the living room floor, they found a manila envelope marked personal, and Jean Waringa, who is Glenna's mother, according to police. They opened the sealed envelope to find three envelopes inside. They were addressed to Glenna's two children and her ex-husband, Bob Norman. The letter to Bob asked that he take care of their children. And from the children, Glenna begged for forgiveness. I'm sorry, but I love you and so sorry. I've been a disappointment to you these last 12 years or so, the letter read. Please forgive me. You're one of the best things I ever did. Love, Mom. These letters were not innocuous communication from Glenna to her children. They seemed to be saying goodbye. Marty's kids turned the letters over to investigators. A detective in October told Glenna Durham the language used in the letters left police with questions. The police report states she admitted that they sounded like suicide letters, but said she had no reason to kill herself or her husband. She claimed she had no memory of writing them. Now, Glenna had been shot in the head and said she could not remember writing the letters, nor could she remember details about the night in question at all, but she insisted she would never hurt Marty. I wouldn't shoot my husband, she told the detective. I'd be better off divorcing him and leaving him. In our everyday lives, we have the luxury of making judgments and making decisions based on our own conclusions. Conclusions drawn from our personal experience. We make these judgments freely and without much consequence. Let's say you're at the grocery store and you see a particular cashier. The last time, this cashier was too busy talking to the bagger, and it took you forever to get out of the store. So, you assume it won't be any different this time, and you choose a different checkout lane. If you're lucky, you chose wisely, and you breeze right through. If you're wrong, well, the consequences are minor. In other instances, the consequences of an incorrect judgment can be severe. As avid consumers of true crime news, 
We see it every day, and we adjust our behavior accordingly. A stranger who knocks on your door asking for a glass of water could be a murderer trying to get into your house. In that circumstance, most of us make the appropriate judgment to keep ourselves safe. Some of us don't. The researcher for this week's episode had a neighbor get murdered in the exact scenario I just mentioned just a few years ago. Despite those who would remind us not to judge, the decisions we make can have permanent consequences for ourselves and for others. But sometimes, judging others is not only a good thing, it's essential to our survival. But our system of justice, it's based on evidence and what we're able to prove in a court of law. Hunches and gut feelings, those don't result in convictions. For investigators, they must find a way to trust their gut to lead them to solid evidence that can be proven in court. It's the mark of a great investigator to know when something isn't right and then find the evidence to prove it. From the public's perspective, the investigation into the murder of Marty Durham seemed to go on for quite some time without any developments. In January of 2016, eight months had passed since Marty Durham was found shot five times in his home, and authorities had yet to make an arrest, but everything was not as it seemed. Detectives had made their judgments and were quietly following their hunches. And this would be a good place to point out how difficult it must be to be an investigator, especially in the era of social media. Nobody is careful with their words these days. They're quick to judge, and they're happy to accuse. Accusations that investigators don't know what they're doing flow freely when there's no news forthcoming. But in nearly every case, investigators know a lot more than they're letting on. They just can't say anything about it. As reported by M. Live, there were a couple sticky questions about the murder of Marty Durham that nobody wanted to answer. State police said early in the investigation that Marty Durham was the victim of a homicide, but investigators have refused to publicly state how his wife was wounded, whether they believe the gunfire stemmed from a domestic situation or if it was the work of a third party. Despite impatience from the family and the public, Authorities insisted they were nearing their final conclusion. Nuego County Prosecutor Robert Springstead said the events that unfolded at the couple's home in May will all become clear pretty quickly, once his office receives final information needed from the investigation. Anyone who views this as an open-and-shut case simply doesn't know all the facts. And he said a mouthful there. When the final report was issued, it would paint a convincing picture of what happened to Marty Durham, but they weren't quite ready yet. And listeners, we'll be right back. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So who were the Durhams? Investigators learned a lot about Marty and Glenna Durham. Marty had a serious car accident back in 1995, and while he was largely a self-sufficient person, he did have memory problems. According to the Detroit News, his condition worsened in 2010, 
and Glenna began earning $3,153 a month for taking care of him, while Marty got $1,100 a month in disability. According to one report, Marty and Glenna worked out an arrangement where they split the pot of payments evenly between them each month. They were reportedly private people, and they kept their doors locked. Each of them had kids from previous relationships, and according to multiple people who knew them, they had a lighthearted manner of play bickering that characterized their interactions. Shit-talking is how one friend described it. Marty and Glenna frequently jabbed at each other, and according to Marty's kids, the joke sometimes extended to Glenna joking about Marty's death. After interviewing one of Marty's family members, an investigator wrote, she indicated he was a pain in the ass to take care of, and one of these days, she was going to kill him. Meanwhile, suspicions are mounting, but the investigation was daunting. From errors at the initial crime scene to Glenna's difficulty remembering relevant details, it was hard to make progress. And it certainly didn't help when a new, very unusual wrinkle in the investigation grabbed headlines on a global scale. This wrinkle had a name. It was Bud, and Bud was an African gray parrot. And before we talk specifically about Bud, let's talk about African gray parrots and how smart they are. When you think of a smart animal, you might think of an orangutan, a chimp, or a dolphin. But not enough credit is given to other animals, like dogs, for example, in particular, German shepherds, or elephants, octopus, and yes, talking birds. According to a study, African gray parrots have the same cognitive ability as a four- to six-year-old child. Think about it. Like a toddler, African grays can recognize shapes and colors and have the capacity to solve simple puzzles. To be clear, having the cognitive ability of a toddler is not the same as being as smart as a toddler when judged by human standards. For instance, African grays don't generally pass the mirror test. When they're placed in front of a mirror, they don't see themselves. They see another bird. But African gray parrots are really smart. There is an entire podcast episode in here about the intelligence of animals, which is a fascinating subject. African grays also have excellent memories, and they can mimic voices with uncanny accuracy. Researchers believe African grays also have the capacity for stress. They can feel traumatized and it's possible they may even replay traumatic events, just like a human can be haunted by something in their past. Bud, he was an African gray parrot, and he was Marty's longtime pet, and Bud was very smart. After Marty's murder, someone needed to take care of Bud, so he was sent to live with Christina Keller, Marty's ex-wife. Within weeks of Marty's murder, while Glenna was hospitalized and going through rehabilitation, Christina was shocked to hear Bud mimic what sounded like a violent argument. She activated her phone to record video while Bud spoke. Perched on the outside of his cage, Bud would verbalize what sounded like two voices, going back and forth with a lot of F-words.
Listen again. What do you think he says? Now, I have to admit, it takes your breath away a little bit. Not only does Bud appear to be repeating the events of Marty's murder, but he sounds like Marty. Listen again. It sounds like Bud is saying in Marty's voice, don't fucking shoot. And the video was taken a month after Marty's murder. Was the parrot repeating Marty's last words? Was he literally reenacting Marty's final moments? So Marty's family alerted the authorities about Bud, and the news cycle exploded with coverage about the parrot who witnessed its owner's murder. Imagine having that dropped in your lap as an investigator. Everybody had an opinion about how useful Bud's words could be. The challenges were best spelled out in Angie Jackson's MLive coverage of the case. Nuevo County Prosecutor Bob Springstead received correspondence from experts around the world after the story made headlines, but hasn't found any legal precedents for using the bird's statements as evidence in the case. Somebody from Lima, Peru, said they used it in Peru, but that doesn't do us any good here, he said. Do you really want to risk a potential appealable issue by pushing the legal limits? So listeners, while compelling and attention-grabbing, Bud's words were not likely to be used in any potential prosecution. Meanwhile, investigators began to assemble the puzzle of Marty and Glenna's finances, and it was not a pretty picture. Detectives examined their spending habits at area casinos and the status of their mortgage and bill payments. According to one report, clerks at several gas stations near the Durham home told police that she often bought lottery tickets, including one station where she purchased $50 to $100 worth of tickets three to four times a week. Glenna also went to casinos once or twice a week, usually accompanied by Marty. And listeners, the more they looked, the more damning the financial trail became. The expression, follow the money, is well known for a reason. Again, from the Detroit News, During a 2012 trip to visit Marty's brother in Montana, the couple couldn't travel anywhere without Glenno wanting to stop at a casino, his brother Dan Durham told police. Dan said he saw Glenna pump $100 bills into slot machines, asking him not to tell Marty. We always had to wait for Glenna to finish gambling, Dan told the police. She took longer than anyone else. If there was any question that Glenna had a strong gambling problem, there was this little tidbit. In 2010, she gambled away $75,000 at local casinos, according to police reports. 
and it should be noted, to be fair, that Marty also spent a five-digit sum on gambling that same year. Investigators found, however, that Marty Durham had been mostly unaware that his financial life was falling down around him by 2015. The Durhams hadn't made a mortgage payment in a year, and they were nearly $50,000 in arrears. Multiple default notices had come and gone. Marty's mother Lillian noticed in April of 2015 there was a foreclosure auction for the Durham home and it was posted in the local newspaper, so she called her son. Glenna convinced Marty it was just a mistake and that she would call the bank. Marty told his mother it didn't make sense because they always use the bank's auto pay feature for their mortgage payments. Despite multiple chances to do the right thing, Glenna never did. The Durham's home was scheduled to be sold at auction on May 13, 2015, the very day that Glenna shot Marty and turned the gun on herself. The executor of Marty's estate would say the Durham's were tapped out. Their checking account had just $182 in it. Their savings account? $118. A safe inside the home had $200 in change. Now, their financial records weren't the only convincing clues investigators discovered. According to police records, in the early morning hours of May 13th, someone used Glenna's phone to look up details about the murder weapon, the Ruger Single Six. Immediately after the search, a text message was sent from Glenna's phone to her mother's phone that read, Love you. Sorry. A criminal investigator's intuition may begin to tingle after reading that. Did Glenna Durham look up how to disengage the safety on the Ruger, then when she figured it out, texted her mom? Was that the moment she decided to go through with her plan? Then there was the testimony of Bud, the African parrot. In the end, Bud's words were unnecessary. Nuevo County Prosecuting Attorney Robert Springstead assembled a case against Glenna that did not require the keenly observant bird to take the stand. At long last, the public was caught up with everything that had been happening behind the scenes when Glenna Durham's arrest hit the news. A 48-year-old Western Michigan woman has been arrested in the death of her husband who was shot five times in their Ensley Township home. Wood TV and MLive.com report Thursday that Glenna Durham is charged with first-degree murder. Glenna's attorneys, of course, put up a fight. But all the silent months when the public was accusing investigators of bungling the investigation were well spent. The evidence was overwhelming, and Glenna Durham was convicted of first-degree murder and a felony weapons charge. In August of 2017, she was sentenced. The Lansing State Journal reported, Woman gets life for murdering husband in parrot case. A Michigan woman has been sentenced to life in prison for the shooting death of her husband in a crime apparently witnessed by the man's pet parrot. 49-year-old Glenna Durham of Sand Lake learned her sentence Monday after a jury found her guilty of first-degree murder and a felony firearm charge last month. Glenna Durham's attorney vowed to appeal, and he did, on the grounds that the data extracted from her cell phone created unfair prejudice in the jury. In May of 2019, her request for a new trial was denied. As of this writing, she is under the supervision of the Department of Corrections in Huron Valley. Listeners, we would not be telling the complete story if we omitted details just because they're unflattering to the victim and his family. So I will mention there was a bit of a scandal attached to the case. 
When the Durham kids staged a minor breaking and entering at their dad's home, they discovered evidence and turned it over to police. Unfortunately, they didn't turn over the cash they found in the home. And when investigators found out about this later, they were not happy. There was also an instance early in the investigation when a probate dispute over property caused one of Marty's family members to lob what others perceived as threats on social media. And, believe it or not, the case was even more salacious than I've described in this episode. During the initial months of silence in the investigation, a friend of the family who also claimed to be a psychic told police to check under the furniture in the living room. Now, she had no way of knowing investigators had already searched under the furniture in the living room, and they found the gun right where she would later tell them to look. The psychic provided so much accurate information that the investigating detective asked her, perhaps half-joking, what she was doing on the night in question. Fortunately, she had an alibi. Unfortunately, the murder of Marty Durham was a sideshow. It was unseemly at times and hard to stomach. Marty was not a perfect man, and neither were some of his family members. But we can't forget who the victim was. He was a person. He was a dad. He was a man who deserved to go on living, who should have had the opportunity to learn from his mistakes and better himself, but it was all cruelly stolen away. Rest in peace, Marty Durham. This week's episode was written and researched by Troy Larson. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.